Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discussed Little Magazine's post-Trump, learned about the turnover in City Hall, and dove into the legacy of Detroit. All this was the latest from Eureka Cast Now, Size Matters, and the Biden Files. It's the Lumpen Week in Review for May 14, 2021. Mario Smith chatted with Crane's A.D. Quigg about the chaos roiling Mayor Lori Lightfoot's senior leadership. With a shuffle at City Hall and vacancies across the administration, is Chicago heading towards new levels of dysfunction? Find out only on News from the Service Entrance, every Thursday at 2 p.m. A.D. Quigg is on the show. Hey, good afternoon. Good afternoon, and we can talk about Stevie Wonder as long as you want. We can <laughs> spend the next 20 minutes on Stevie Wonder if you want. <laughs> Where are we if if we were to have like a because this past week you had the the emails have come out mm-hmm. uh, kind of confirming what people thought about how things are going down there, um, and her general attitude is not really pleasant depending on who you ask and mm-hmm. if you read those emails it kind of bears that fruit she doesn't want to talk about these emails and 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 fine but but the you've had a chance to watch this from the beginning to now. What is your perception of what we've seen so far of Mayor Lori Lightfoot? That's a big question. And it's been undoubtedly a very wild ride. It would be an unprecedented time for any new mayor coming in, but especially for one um, without the political pedigree that Lightfoot had, especially compared to Rahm and Daly. Um, If you talk to people that are big Lightfoot fans, they will tell you if you voted for her, you voted for a fighter. You voted for a tough person who is candid and honest and doesn't back down. And we have seen that um, for better or worse. It has, I think, made her efforts to build relationships more difficult, um, which also makes achieving things more difficult. Um, but she has a con- it's a mixed record, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that she came in wanting to do that got completely upended by COVID, which just made everything more tense, um, made every negotiation that much more difficult because it was um, life and death and the economy and civil unrest. So this would have been a, a gigantic challenge for anyone coming in. But um, my colleague Greg Hines and I are working on a story looking back at these past two years, and kind of the consensus has been. Um, Things could have been a lot easier for the mayor if she had been uh, more politic, if not more of a politician. I don't think she ever wants to be a politician, but there are some things that even allies agree she could work on as far as bridge building goes. She won every ward but one in that election that lasted forever. Um, and it would, one would think that she had a mandate coming in because of the amount of votes that she got considering there weren't a whole lot of people that voted but there was still that's a you win every ward mm-hmm. minus one that's every a, ward. That, yeah that's a thing um how how come she's not is it because she's not politician I'm like, i guess my question is how come she is not more or, or received better by those closest to her because it seems like she's not listening to folks when they're when they're say, suggesting to her, you know, Madam Mayor, you have to build relationships a little bit better. Everybody can't get cursed out. Uh, everybody's not against you. Why? Why such the tough guy act from from this mayor in particular when she seems to have the support based on the election of the people? I don't know. I think that's a great question. 
Um, and I think part of it is just, um, it's hard for some people to walk away from fights, right? And they're, it is not in her nature to stop fighting. Um, she's a prosecutor, a litigator. Um, she likes mixing it up with people. Um, she's been fighting her whole life. She fought to get out of her small town, to overcome some of her family circumstances, to get through law school as a black gay woman. Um, she was up against a lot, and I think it makes it difficult to um, kind of put your fists away and sit down and calm down and say, all right, um, where can we land on middle ground on that? Um, part of it, I think, is also fueled by, if you're a politician, you have a lifetime of um, connections and, and promises to cash in on and past relationships where you know that both of you can trust each other. Um, some of the folks I talked to for this uh, story that Greg and I are working on said uh, it, it's, it's kind of hard to gain her trust because she's got, um, she's kind of got her dukes up in a sense. And I, I don't know how much of that is fueled by uh, some of her perception going in that people that are steeped in politics are unworthy of trust, um, but that's something she's going to have to work on. And I think what is hurting that is uh, the loss of so many uh top aides in her administration. She's got a ton of vacancies right now, and part of what department heads and deputy mayors, uh, press people, intergovernmental affairs people are supposed to do is to smooth the track for you and also give you a lay of the land and work their relationships to figure out what's really going on on the ground. And when you have fewer people in those positions, you have fewer touch points to figure out, all right, what does so-and-so think about this and what can we do to win them over? So part of it is Part of it, I think, is her nature, and part of it, I think, is not having a, a big enough team um, that is really well-versed in uh, politics and relationships. And the other thing we have to keep in mind is that there's been uh, massive political change that has um, upended a lot of key players that we used to think about as gatekeepers to getting stuff done. So Ed Burke is gone. Mike Madigan is gone. John Cullerton is gone. Governor Pritzker is still pretty new. Um, and it's kind of changed the landscape for who you've got to deal with and the stuff that they care about. So it's just, plus COVID. I mean, it's difficult to get relationships going if you can't meet people in person and have a drink and talk about stuff that isn't work and figure out if you like each other or have stuff in common. It's just like a confluence of not great things that has brought us here. With that in mind, then, we're, we seem to be turning the corner on COVID. Not over mm -hmm. it at all, but definitely in a better place than we were 15 months ago than mm -hmm. we were even five hours ago because now the CDC has said if you've vaxxed up, you, you're pretty much free to go as you were. Um, she now has a chance to get a really wonderful mulligan for all this other crazy that has happened um, mm -hmm. in the past few months of her administration. You've got the, the and we'll get to that in a second with the police and, and schools and things like that. But, I mean, just generally boots on the ground stuff that she wasn't able to do. Is this now? Are we going to see her try to endear herself to these people who is, who she's um, kind of pushed into a corner to, 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 like, get away from me, let me do my job, I'm the mayor? Um, that toughness that could be, you know, you, you, you get more flies with honey, mm -hmm. you know the rest. And, and it doesn't appear that she's very much on the side of honey. It, it does, does, is this a wholesale change that's getting ready to take place, you think, with her I, and how she does her job? She's got a big, gigantic 
opportunity coming in the form of billions of dollars of federal relief. Um, all this COVID relief money that's coming down is a massive chance to make some partnerships and keep people happy. Um, I wrote about this a few weeks ago, but back when, after the 2008 recession, the city got a bunch of money, but it was super grant restricted, not very flexible at all, and not as big as what we're about to get. So not only is she getting it for the city, um, there might be some extra infrastructure dollars, CPS is about to get a bunch of money, and there's nothing uh, that greases the political wheels like having a bunch of money. Um, the other thing that works in their favor, like you said, is the COVID numbers going down, and we're going to be opening things up. Uh, people are going to be just in a, in a better mood. The business community that was really agitating for some guidance about, hey, summer is busy season, we need conventions back, we need tourists back, we need people staying at hotels, um, going downtown. All of that's going to open up. That's another opportunity for people to feel good about where the direction is heading. But she's got to she's got to do it right, and she's got to talk to talk to everybody about what they want to see that money spent on. And they also need a signal that the mayor is going to listen to them and take it into account and have that reflected in her spending plans. I think part of that will be helped, especially if people can start meeting in person again. People can kind of be like, I can look you in the eyes. Mm. Um, and we can figure this out together. I, I think we underestimate um, how much being physically apart hurt politics. Um, and maybe people getting together again might make that easier. Uh, we've heard good things and bad things, and all of them acknowledge that this past 15, 16 months has been unprecedented, challenging, um, unpredictable. So I think they, a lot of people we spoke with give her grace uh, and a lot of space on that stuff, but are as frustrated as others are about a perception that um, people aren't being listened to and that things aren't moving or getting done. Um, there was some frustration in the business community about uh, not putting a pause on a fair scheduling ordinance saying, like, well, we have no idea what schedules are going to look like, especially if mitigations keep changing every week. Um, but on so many of these issues, on policing, on business, with CTU, it seems like the mayor is making neither side happy. Like, she's not particularly pro-business, like Mayor Rahm Emanuel has a reputation for being. She's not particularly uh, pro-police in certain respects, but reformers are very dissatisfied with where she's at. Um, with CTU, there were certain things that she campaigned on that aligned closely with what CTU wanted, and ultimately that contract that they got was largely what CTU wanted, but she does not have a good relationship with them either. It's just she's in this, like, tough uh, middle position with almost everyone, and it seems like nobody's happy. So yeah. that's going to be, like, coming to halftime like she's at right now and saying, we have so many opportunities to turn this around, let's try to start, make, start making people happy, is going to be so important.
The boys from I-94 chatted to the editors of The Point, Rachel Wiseman and John Baskin. They discussed running a little magazine during the pandemic, the pressure to print material that aligns with preconceived notions, and why magazines are more important than ever. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature Show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. Thanks so much for joining us. We have a new book out from you guys, The Opening of the American Mind. It is out, of course, from the University of Chicago Press, where you guys are based out of. Real quickly, before we kind of get into the book, can you tell our listeners about The Point and what it is for folks that are not familiar with it? The Point is a magazine, I guess the quickest way to say it, we say of of, uh, philosophical essays about everyday life. Um, it began, uh, I helped start the magazine about 12 years ago when I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago. And the idea was to, was to try to publish essays that were sort of, um, you know, serious and intellectual cha- intellectually challenging, but also fun and accessible and spoke to things that were really happening in people's everyday lives and were not sort of limited to an audience of academics who had read all the literature or, or, were, or were terribly concerned with a specific discipline, but instead to be a magazine that sort of spoke to the role that ideas play in all the everyday ways we live when we decide what to eat or how to parent or who to marry or, or who to vote for. Um, and that's always uh, been the aspiration of the magazine. We come out uh, originally twice a year, now three times a year in print, but we also have a website and um, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's that's my that's my short elevator pitch for what for what the point is. And the point came out. Um, it started among a kind of wave of new American magazines: N Plus One, Jacobin, McSweeney's. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of ferment? Because um, that era uh, right now, especially post pandemic, seems kind of distant. Can you can you talk a little bit about the little magazine culture? and kind of how you guys got your footing in that? Yeah, I mean, so I had I had actually been in living in New York uh, when N Plus One began, and it was actually a very exciting time. You have to kind of go back to that time and remember that there was a lot of talk about print being dead. The future was going to be websites like Slate and Salon and blogs, and no one cared about, you know, long-form essays anymore or, or stylish writing. And so N plus one was a really exciting development. It sort of showed it was a magazine started in New York that had a kind of uh, kind of trying to pick up the mantle from the old partisan review of sort of mixing political essays and literary essays. And it was, you know, it was a magazine that really took uh, took intellectual life and politics and culture seriously and did it for a younger readership and trusted that that readership would be interested in. 8,000 word essays. Uh, And I have this memory in New York of just the excitement that the magazine created among young people, the kind of people who were supposedly not interested in print culture anymore. Um, So that was that was definitely made a big impact on me. And also just seeing that these guys had kind of started this magazine, you didn't need a lot of money or a lot of cultural capital to get started, you could just do it with your friends and, and and people would respond if you if you if you did it about something relevant. So Yeah, I think they really deserve probably most of the credit for starting that sort of generation of new uh, literary magazines, which, as you said, then continued with places like Jacobin. There was a sort of reboot of The Baffler, an old Chicago magazine Mm -hmm. that then got rebooted on the East Coast. Uh, The New Republic and various other magazines went through sort of a new phase, um, often got totally made over Boston Review. And so, yeah, the point was really sort of in that group. And... um, 
you know, yeah, we can talk about what sort of distinguishes us from that, but you're right. There was this sort of ferment. Um, I don't know. I'm interested if, why you think that might be that it feels so distant uh, in the pandemic. I mean, one, one thing that's definitely happened since then is the rise of the podcast as a place for younger people to talk and think about ideas and politics, which I do think has displaced some of that audience. Um, but there, there do also continue to be new magazines. There's a new magazine called The Drift, which started a couple of years ago, about a year ago now, uh, which is sort of seeking to be in that tradition. So, you know, I think there's a mix now um, starting to emerge. Yeah, I would, yeah. Just, I would say just, you know, to answer your question, I, I think podcasts have really come into that space. And um, without newsstand sales, you know, a lot of magazines have now really migrated to digital uh, digital first, including some of the magazines you mentioned, uh, like the London Review of Books. Uh, and that's out of necessity. You know what I mean? That if you can't get people to the newsstands, then people can't buy them. And unless you have a subscriber base, people can't get into them. But I think that's a, a question for, for later on. Uh, and I know, Rachel, you had something to say. Oh, I was just going I, I was just going to speak to my experience as kind of a consumer of the magazine before I started getting involved in it, because I was in college when John started the magazine with Itai and Johnny. And, and I remember very much feeling this sense of um, kind of wondering what would happen with all of these intellectual magazines that were sort of starting or restarting at the time amid this just general sense of print kind of being on the way out. And there was this kind of question that I had, is it going to be something that's merely sort of twee or, like, or a throwback or can it feel current? And I think one of the things that N plus one and then also the point kind of proved to me um, and what was exciting is that it didn't have to, it didn't have to feel like a throwback. It could actually feel engaged with the current, you know, politics and questions that people were living through. Um, and I do think that now podcasts have supplanted some of that, but there is this way in which the long form essay is kind of a, it's a special format <laughs> that you don't really get in a podcast, which can be just kind of more conversational and chatty, but you really actually get to see through the course of these essays, how someone's thinking through a problem. Um, and that was what was so exciting for me at the time when I was reading it. I, I, it seemed like a kind of proof of concept. Yeah, to touch on your guys' point, too, as a lot of you know, I'm a librarian, and I remember at the same time when these magazines were starting out, you'd go to a library conference and people would be like, everything's going to be digital, 2010. And, like, you know, obviously that didn't happen, but uh, I, I wanted to ask a question. So, you know, you guys cover people that can be considered untouchable in today's climate, like Welbeck, um, David Foster Wallace, you had a quote from Thomas Chatterton Williams on the back. And these are people that are controversial, not to me, I love all of them. Um, I love my favorite essay was the Megan O'Keeblin. Is that you say her name? Giblin, Giblin, Giblin. Giblin. We had her on the show. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just yeah, we're known for mastering. Names, yes, we so are. It's our trademark. It was a yeah. long time ago. And then also, you know, the Welbeck essay, I, I loved. And, um, do you guys ever get any pushback for any of your content? Go, Rachel. <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> um, quite often. Um, I mean, I think uh, one of the it, it causes confusion um, sometimes the fact that we publish people from very different um, ideological backgrounds that we do publish um, essays about. Contra controversial figures like 
Welbeck or, um, you know, in the book, there's also a long form essay about um, kind of the intellectuals of the alt-right. And one of the things that sort of distinguishes the point from some other magazines in a similar kind of space is that we're, um, even with these difficult, sometimes abhorrent kinds of figures or, or um, uh, personalities, we try to understand them sort of from the inside out um, and these movements. Um, so when it came to the Final Fantasy piece, instead of sort of just constantly uh, uh, demonstrating how um, how the writer um, James Deusterberg might know better than the other, um, you know, than these other thinkers. He tries to understand the actual appeal, the way that this movement has a kind of hold on you and what it's really trying to do. And only th that way can you really try to understand it. Um, so we do get uh, some, some people get kind of confused or annoyed, I think, by the magazine's um, interest in publishing some of these pieces, but, uh, but, more, I mean, more importantly, we get, I think it's one of the things that people I think recognize as valuable about it. You know, I haven't really checked the website. I know there, there's a comment space. Does that, does that get populated with, with uh, critique or is it, are, are most readers engaging by email? We actually uh, no. got rid, we actually got rid of the comments. <laughs> oh, okay. But the truth is most people engage on Twitter as with everything okay. now. Uh, Twitter becomes the comment section. Um, of the magazine. And just one thing that's interesting, I mean, the, the book spans a period from 2008 to eight, uh, to, you know, to 2020, but 2009, basically to 2020. And, you know, the Wallace and Welbeck essays that you mentioned were written in the very early issues of the magazine. And the truth is, it was a very different intellectual environment at that time. Uh, those pieces, which are both, as you say, not just did we wrote about those pieces, but they're admiring in certain way, in many ways, and always about Wallace and in many ways about Welbeck. They're saying these writers are really getting at something true about contemporary experience. And it's interesting that uh, to write in that way about those figures at that time did not actually get you nearly the kind of pushback it would eight years or 10 years later uh, to write about those same people. And so we have, we did the early years of the magazine, partly this was also because we were just smaller, but we really didn't get a lot of flack for that kind of thing. I think people actually just appreciated the kind of serious engagement with these writers and trying to understand what they were doing. Um, I think now it's a much more fraught thing and we have certainly been in, sort of gotten dragged into some of the culture wars in the last five or six years, much more uh, regularly um, whenever we publish something that sort of runs afoul of certain kinds of official opinions or, yeah, as Rachel was saying, take someone, uh, take someone seriously and on their own terms who the, uh, you know, official, uh, judges of, of, of what's acceptable have decided should not be taken on their own terms. They should just be condemned. Um, and that is a kind of thing we, we sometimes get, get, get criticized for. Yeah. I remember John at your reading, I was talking to Rachel and I think you guys had a, uh, at the time the issue was about politics and you included a conservative voice and people were backing out of doing a contribution because of that. And to me, to have dialogue about things, you have to present all kinds of opinions, all kinds of ideas, um, and, and I'm not saying like vehemently hateful, but you know, 50% of this country is right wing or right leaning, and or maybe more. I don't know. 
And um, I don't know. I, th I think it's necessary in this day and age to, you know, not just cover, like we all know, you know, the liberal talking points. I want to know what other people are thinking. And I, I don't know. I appreciate that. Well, but I mean, that's a very American thing. I mean, I, I read a lot of, just because my background, I read a lot of international magazines and press. And I, I don't necessarily see that in other publications. You know, the London Review of Books is fine on publishing pieces from, you know, Tory grandees and, and labor figures, as is the Times Literary Supplement. Um, and while there is pushback in the comment section of the, the Guardian, which I think is seen as, you know, the international left-leaning paper, um, I, I kind of wonder whether this is a uniquely American problem um, with this kind of self-selection uh, against having differing viewpoints. And I wonder if you could comment on that. Well, the thing, the thing I see is very American is the Puritanism. Um, you know, you always have to remember we were founded by Puritans. And I do think there's, there's frequently this sort of puritanical strain in American, um, politics, culture, criticism, all it, it, it manifests in all kinds of ways. And, um, it's weird because on the one hand, what's very American also is that we have an extremely wide, you know, uh, divergence of opinion within this country. And, and, and I think one of the things the magazine really was sort of, in some ways, the Trump, Trump being elected was a moment where we really felt we had a very specific role to play there because here was this moment that came as such a shock to so many people in the kind of liberal world who had, who had been busy sort of excommunicating from their magazines any of the kind of people who would have who would vote for Trump or who would defend him or would, who would see anything uh, interesting or compelling about what he was doing, and so um, you know and, and sort of yeah sort of puritanically trying to say we can just get rid of that from our from our discourse, but getting rid of it from a certain kind of discourse, of course, doesn't erase it from the world in which exactly. you live. Uh, and, and in a way, the election showed that very, uh, very starkly, I think. And so the magazine wanted to be this sort of bridge between what uh, an increasingly sort of puritanical um, uh, need to control the discourse within the sort of publishing and intellectual worlds, mostly concentrated on the coasts of the country. And then the actual reality of American life, which, of course, is not... Um, cannot be purified of any of these intensely contentious and differing ideas about how to live and, and who to vote for and what the kind, what the country means. We did, I think our symposium, you know, right after Trump was elected was what is America for? Because we wanted to try and create, and there are some essays from that, from that in the book, we wanted to try and give a real sense of the map of, of, of sort of how the history of the country was a history of deep debate and argument over this question. And yeah, we wanted to have a symposium that had conservatives, that had people that feel really differently about it than a lot of our readers do and that than some of our editors do, because otherwise, what was the point? Uh, we felt, uh, no pun intended, but that was that was sort of, and, and that was something we felt sort of set us on a path that really distinguished us from a lot of other magazines in the Trump years. This week on The Biden Files, the GOP begins to eat its own, Republicans continue to make voting more partisan, job openings fall well short, Liz Cheney is axed, a pipeline is hit, 
And that Middle East peace plan from Jared Kushner? It didn't work. These are the Biden files. Day 108, May 7th. Trump's Justice Department secretly accessed the phone records of three prominent Washington Post journalists. That trio, Ellen Nakashima, Greg Miller, and Adam Entuz, were writing about Russia's role in the 2016 election and had revealed that Jeff Sessions had discussed the Trump campaign with the Russian ambassador while he was serving as Trump's foreign policy advisor. The Justice Department apparently also tried to obtain their emails. Former Attorney General William Barr signed off on those requests, claiming he was investigating leaks to the media. The U.S. economy added just 266,000 jobs in April, well short of the 1 million that economists had forecast, and a sharp drop-off from the 770,000 jobs added in March. The April unemployment rate remained unchanged at 6.1%. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Republican Party blamed that jobs report on the $300 per week federal jobless benefit claiming it was preventing workers from returning to work. Economists, however, said that wages remain stagnant in America and that employers are hesitant to hire en masse due to uncertainty remaining from the pandemic. The Department of Justice filed federal criminal charges against former police officer Derek Chauvin and three other former Minneapolis police officers in connection with the death of George Floyd. Chauvin, who was convicted of murder, and the three other officers are accused of letting Floyd die by willfully failing to stop Chauvin. Also, Chauvin was charged in another federal indictment with violating the civil rights of a 14-year-old Minneapolis boy during a September 2017 arrest by holding the boy by the neck and hitting him multiple times in the head with a flashlight. Day 109, May 8th. The Federal Election Commission dropped the hush money case into Trump's payoff of former porn star Stormy Daniels shortly before the 2016 election. The $130,000 payment made to Daniels was never reported on Trump's campaign filings. Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, who made that payment, was sentenced to prison for breaking campaign finance laws as well as tax evasion and lying to Congress. Trump subsequently thanked the FCC for, quote, dropping the phony case against me concerning payments to women relative to the 2016 presidential election. Nearly one million Americans signed up for Obamacare during a special open enrollment period, signaling a pent-up desire in the nation for health insurance. Those plans were made more attractive by new subsidies included in the most recent stimulus package. The numbers also undercount the overall new insurance signups. They reflect enrollment only in the 36 states the federal government directly oversees. Texas and Florida became the two latest states to enact new voting restrictions in a law following the 2020 election. Those moves follow Trump's repeated false claims of election fraud following his loss to President Joe Biden. Combined, those two states have more than 70 electoral votes. Texas's changes will make it the hardest state to cast a ballot in in America. The Biden administration announced new protections against discrimination in health care based on gender identity and sexual orientation. The move reverses a Trump policy that limited protections for transgender people by narrowing the legal definition of sex discrimination to, quote, the plain meaning of the word sex as male or female and is determined by biology. Day 110, May 9th. A major fuel pipeline carrying refined gasoline and jet fuel from Texas up the east coast of New York was forced to shut down after being hit by a ransomware attack. 
This was apparently one of the largest attacks on American infrastructure ever. Colonial Pipeline acknowledged that its corporate computer networks were held hostage, but they remained unclear this weekend if the pipeline itself was materially affected. The FBI said they believe the attack was the act of a criminal group rather than a nation-state seeking to disrupt critical infrastructure. However, many groups have been clients of states such as North Korea, Iran, or Russia. It is also believed that Colonial paid the ransom. The World Health Organization said a highly contagious triple mutant COVID-19 variant spreading in India is a variant of concern. In preliminary studies, the variant known as B1617 spread more easily than the original virus, and there is concern it may evade vaccines. Two Trump family members got, quote, inappropriately and perhaps dangerously close to Secret Service agents. Secret Service protection for Trump's adult children cost $150,000 a month. Vanessa Trump, the wife of the president's oldest son, Donald Trump Jr., started dating one of the agents who had been signed to her family. Vanessa Trump filed for an uncontested divorce in March 2018. The agent did not face disciplinary action as neither he nor the agency were official guardians of Vanessa Trump. Tiffany Trump, Donald Trump's daughter with his second wife, Marla Maples, broke up with a boyfriend and, quote, began spending an unusual amount of time alone with a Secret Service agent on her detail. Secret Service leaders, quote, became concerned at how close Tiffany appeared to be getting to the tall, dark, and handsome Secret Service agent. Day 111, May 10th. Five mass shootings rocked the United States this weekend with incidents in New York City's Times Square, a Phoenix hotel, a shopping mall in Florida, a birthday party in Colorado, and a townhome near Baltimore. Some 700 people have been shot this year, including a 14-year-old boy in Chicago this weekend in what President Joe Biden called an embarrassing epidemic of violence. The Department of Justice moved this weekend to regulate so-called ghost guns, but a major case before the Supreme Court this summer involving concealed carry laws is viewed as possibly opening the floodgates to making weaponry available in all 50 states. The FBI said that an Eastern European hacking group known as DarkSide is responsible for a ransomware attack that closed a pipeline providing America's East Coast with gasoline and jet fuel. President Biden said the government had mitigated the impact and would issue an executive order in the coming days to strengthen America's cyber defense infrastructure. Colonial Pipeline said that situation was fluid and continues to evolve, but it hoped to substantially restore service by the end of the week. Fuel prices sharply rose on news of the attack. The FBI also linked that hacking group with Russia, intimating the attack might have been sanctioned by the Kremlin. In a statement, Darkside said it wasn't to blame and suggested that an affiliate may have been behind the attack, saying it was only in the game to make money and had not intended to cause disruption or harm. The group also promised to do a better job of screening customers that buy their malware to run ransomware attacks. Air pollution from American farms now accounts for more than 17,000 annual deaths, according to a first-of-its-kind study. About 80% of the deaths were linked to fine particle pollution from animal-based agriculture. Those emissions now account for more deaths annually than pollution from coal power plants. The Biden administration approved the nation's first large-scale offshore wind farm. The Vineyard Wind Project calls for 84 turbines to be installed off Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, creating enough electricity to power 400,000 homes. The White House estimates the project will create 3,600 jobs. 
Day 112, May 11th. Republicans are moving today to oust Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney from House leadership for her outspoken repudiation of Trump. Cheney has continued to hit back at Trump's lies and declared last night on the House floor that she would not sit by as her party aids Trump's attempts to undermine democracy. Cheney is almost certain to be jettisoned for Representative Elise Stefanik of New York, a former moderate who has gone all in on Trump's falsehoods. In a related story, 100 Republicans, including some former elected officials, have threatened to form a third party. That move is unlikely to shift the discourse in the Republican Party, which continues to remain in the thrall of both Trump and Fox News. The FDA has authorized the Pfizer vaccine for children as young as 12, likely setting off a wave of vaccinations ahead of the next school year. Many school systems are likely to mandate vaccination to attend classes in person next season. Meanwhile, Illinois officials reported the lowest statewide positivity rate in months. We saw new lows across America for the first time in six months. President Biden is expected to nominate former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel to serve as the U.S. Ambassador to Japan. Emanuel served as President Obama's first White House Chief of Staff. He was also a senior advisor to Bill Clinton. Biden had considered naming Emanuel to serve as his transportation secretary. Emanuel's nomination is likely to be fiercely contested. He does need U.S. Senate approval. A federal judge ruled the National Rifle Association cannot use bankruptcy to reorganize in gun-friendly Texas. The association tried the novel legal maneuver to avoid prosecution in New York State, where it is facing an attempt to dissolve it. New York's Attorney General Letitia James sued the NRA on grounds of corruption and misspending. New York says the group should be disbarred. Three Republican governors cut enhanced jobless benefits in their states in an effort to force people to return to work. Arkansas, Montana, and South Carolina targeted the extra $300 in weekly enhanced jobless benefits. Other Republican governors have also recently reinstated requirements for aid, which they had suspended during the pandemic. President Biden, meanwhile, called on companies to step up by helping workers access vaccines and by raising wages. But he also said the White House will make it clear that people collecting benefits under the American Rescue Plan must take a suitable job offer or they'll lose their benefits. The House Judiciary Committee has struck an agreement in principle to resolve a two-year-old fight over a subpoena for testimony from Don McGahn, a former White House counsel to Trump. Trump has not signed off on the deal and could try to take legal action, but the filing from the House and Justice Department seem to try to head off such a move by noting pointedly that Trump is not a party to the case. The House subpoena began in 2019 to testify as part of an investigation into alleged episodes of obstruction of justice by Trump that McGahn described in report for special counsel Robert Mueller. Day 113, May 12th. House Republicans removed Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming as conference chair in retaliation for her unyielding criticism of Trump. Cheney has criticized Trump's continued false claims of a stolen election, his role in the January 6th riot, and his future in the Republican Party. That move by a voice vote marks the second time this year that Cheney faced a vote from her fellow House Republicans to remove her as conference chair. Cheney subsequently warned that Trump risks inciting further violence by continuing to push his baseless claims about voter fraud. Quote, remaining silent and ignoring the lie emboldens the liar. I will not participate in that. If you want leaders who will enable and spread his destructive lies, I'm not your person. You have plenty of others to choose from. That will be their legacy. 
A sudden fuel shortage caused by the ransomware attack on a fuel pipeline worsened across the eastern half of the U.S. as panic buying struck from Alabama to Chesapeake Bay. While officials said the United States had plenty of fuel and the affected pipeline resumed operations overnight, drivers clogged gas stations up and down the eastern seaboard. 12,000 gas stations reported being completely empty. The squeeze pushed the price of a gallon past $3, its highest price in eight years. Consumer prices also surged 4.2% last month. That was the largest 12-month increase since the depths of the Great Recession. The accelerating inflation came as companies have been forced to pay more to secure materials. World governments have also pumped trillions of dollars into the economy in a bid to blunt the impact from the coronavirus, also contributing to inflation. Mysterious episodes that cause brain injuries in spies, diplomats, and other U.S. personnel overseas are far more widespread than previously known. At least 130 people have been injured within the State Department, Defense Department, and the CIA. Pentagon officials believe Russia's military intelligence agency, the GRU, is most likely behind the cases, which are also believed to involve microwave weapons. And ahead of a meeting with President Biden, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell suggested that the, quote, proper price tag for Biden's infrastructure package is between $600 billion and $800 billion. Biden has proposed $2.3 trillion in infrastructure spending. Day 114, May 13th. Trump's acting attorney general testified that the Justice Department had no evidence of widespread voter fraud. Jeffrey Rosen, however, declined to answer questions about whether Trump had pressed him to take any action to advance his unfounded claims of fraud. Christopher Miller, who was the acting defense secretary on January 6th, testified why it took hours for the National Guard to respond to the riot, saying he worried that sending troops in would contribute to perceptions of a military coup being staged by Trump. Attorney General Merrick Garland told the same congressional session that the greatest domestic threat to the U.S. is from, quote, those who advocate for the superiority of the white race. The Department of Homeland Services head Alejandro Mayorkas said the department is taking a new approach to addressing domestic violent extremism, both internally and externally. And during that same review, Representative Andrew Clyde of Georgia denied there was an insurrection at all. He said it was only a mob with some rioters who committed vandalism. Quote, there was no insurrection, and to call it an insurrection, in my opinion, is a bold-faced lie. Clyde went on to claim people walked in an orderly fashion between roped-off stanchions at the Capitol, taking videos and pictures. You know, if you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January 6th, you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. Clyde added the only insurrection he has ever seen was the Russia investigation of Trump. 64% of Americans think social media platforms do more to divide the nation than to bring it together. 66% of adults say they use social media at least once a day. 61% approve of the performance of Joe Biden. These are the Biden Files. Chuck Mertz chatted with historian Matthew D. Lassiter on his multimedia exhibit about the city of Detroit. Lassiter discussed police violence in the civil rights era, how Detroit changed from being the Paris of the Midwest to a symbol of American decline, and how policing is undergoing what may be a generational shift. 
This is Hell airs Thursdays and Sundays at 10 a.m. Why is what happened in Detroit from 1957 to 1963 or 1973 or even from the riot or the uprising in 1967 to 1973? Why is that important for us to look at today during today's uprisings against police violence? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Um, Perhaps the most important for today is that the policies that were put in place, the legal changes, the cover-up apparatus in response to the massive civil rights and black power demands for police accountability in the 60s and 70s are the same policies and laws that are continuing to govern and exonerate police officers for violence today. And, And it's really important to emphasize that this is not about the individual officer in the individual encounter. These are laws and policies and systems designed for non-accountability. But you point out that when you do look at the records, you're looking at records of individual actions. How much can that distract you from the, distract anyone? When you're looking at individual actions, how much can that distract you from a more systemic uh, critique of the Detroit Police Department or policing in general? That's a really good question. So we we started our project with the research question, how many people did the Detroit Police Department actually kill? That's impossible to know. It's completely hidden. A number of incidents never even got reported. And so phase one was just Uh, backtracking through the archives, often building on the work of civil rights groups and just identifying people who had been lost to history. And as an aside, I think that's another very important justification. These are mainly young black males who have been labeled felons and their deaths have been blamed on them. And that lingers for their families and their communities. But we, we went into the project trying to look for what happened in these encounters. And what we increasingly found is that it was the policies and the systems that the police department actively encouraged shooting unarmed young black males during and after 1967 in response to black activism, black power, in response to a sense that the white majority in Detroit was gonna lose control of the city to African-Americans. And and so over and over, we found that the policies and the laws, the prosecutors whitewashing, the homicide bureaus whitewashing of investigations are really what allows police violence to flourish in the street level encounters. What do you think is the long-term impact on justice within a place like Wayne County, the city of Detroit, when they do have that kind of prosecutorial corruption, if you will, in the way that they support the police at all ends. What happens to justice? What happens to to democracy when prosecutors and police can get away with whatever they want? It's far too late for justice for what happened during this era. I, I do believe, and our project has argued, that the current prosecutor in Wayne County should make all of these files available to the families, to the communities, to researchers like our project, that if they exonerated police officers in a fatal force incident, then they should show the evidence. Most of it is not secret 
grand jury evidence because they took almost none of these cases to the grand jury. And we can get these through Freedom of Information Act requests, but it's a really laborious and you can't ask for it until you know the actual name of the person killed and the circumstances. And that took a huge amount of labor for a 22 person research team to dig up. And we've only still identified maybe three quarters of the fatal force incidents that the police department admits. And I would estimate possibly only half of the ones that actually happened. So there are people who are very loyal supporters of the police. They are unquestioning supporters of the, of the police. Can we say that that unquestioning support of police is driven by them being simply uninformed of how violent the police have been? Because the police have, violently, have covered up their violence with the help of prosecutors, with the help of their own uh, homicide bureau. How much do you think the, the blind support for police is due to the fact that people just don't know? That's a good question. And I, I think partly this is about exposing systems of state violence. And what we saw with George Floyd is that a lot of white Americans, when confronted with you know, a horrible video, 13 minutes, will go to the streets. But most police violence doesn't happen you know, on camera. And one of the big questions for our project is, you know, you're always, as a historical project, thinking about causation and why things happen. And a lot of the encouragement for the police department's actions came from white neighborhoods and white voters in Detroit at the time. The civil rights movement was pushing for a civilian review board for police oversight. That was adamantly opposed, not just by the police department, but by white residents of Detroit. We found thousands of letters to the mayor from white residents saying, no way should we have a civilian review board because the police need to be unthrottled. They need total control to keep the black community in its place. And we saw a strong support for a stop and frisk law that the Detroit, that the city of Detroit passed in 1968, immediately after and in response to the uprising of 67. And so over and over, um, it really, you know, I, I would even go back to like Michael Brown in Ferguson is the most important question about whether Officer Darren Wilson is a racist or not, or guilty or not, or is the question what policies, what forces of racial segregation and inequality put that officer and Michael Brown on the street where he was accosting him for quote manner of walking in the street and led to the to his killing? Like the the policies and the larger social forces. Are there, and I think that's very hard for most white Americans to see, not just the individual wrong, but the larger structures, metropolitan structures of inequality and the policies that bring us to a place like Detroit, 1971 to 73, when the stress unit just went on a killing spree. 
that's the stop the robberies, enjoy stri- uh, safe street strategy that the police in Detroit had implemented. You were mentioning stop and frisk, and you also talk about the focus on low-level property crimes. These strategies that both come from stem from uh, you know response to the civil rights movement. Stop and frisk, and you know what would some people would call the broken policy strategy of policing. We always talk about the remnants, the legacy of slavery and how that influences policing. To what extent is police violence today influenced by a backlash by police and the state and the city against the civil rights movement? Yeah, great question. And and so in this other book that I'm finishing up, one of the things that I document is that white and black youth break the laws, especially burglary, vandalism, and the drug laws at basically the exact same rate during the 1950s and 1960s. But black youth who do a low-level burglary, who are involved in a really minor property crime, the police just have the authority to shoot them. They shot a, a black teenager and killed him in the back when somebody called in a report that a dollar and 83 cents had been stolen from a cash box of a business. And then the police rolled up the alleged kid who did it started running away and they just shot him and killed him. That just doesn't happen in white neighborhoods. It it just wouldn't, it wouldn't happen in the suburbs. It wouldn't happen in Evanston probably um, where you are in, you know, in Chicago. And then, the, the other problem with this is because there was such a carte blanche, you know, preemptive authorization to kill, quote unquote, fleeing felons, when police officers did wrongful killings, it was just a script through which they could frame the victims and say that they were running away. I started the Boston Review article with a 13 year old boy who was walking home from playing at a friend's house when an officer shot him. I don't know if the officer did it on purpose or did it by accident. They were there to investigate a kind of racial friction incident in a racially transitional neighborhood. But once they shot him, then they just said he was a burglar. He was fleeing the scene. And then that was a kind of automatic, um, you know, trump card in the investigation, even though five or six African-American witnesses said he wasn't involved at all. And the Homicide Bureau didn't care, and the prosecutor didn't care to even listen to what they said. Download complete. Now playing Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity. Imagine science. I'm not, I'm not going to dismiss that that um, uh, gamma rays and, and alpha and beta particles are, are, are not bad for you. They are quite quite bad for you. But mm-hmm. at a certain point, that mellows out. That peters off. That's, and you're left these two, with... Again, clinical terms. You are left with something that is beneficial to you. Are you so, you're, so you're saying when the gamma radiation uh, is, is depleted from, say, a, a chunk of uranium... Um, as 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 those those rays lessen, uh, it, what actually happens is you see an increase in these epsilon waves emanating from uh, from that sample. Yes, and those epsilon waves have many benefits: muscle growth, quicker reaction time, increased virility, I, super tasting abilities. R- Rowan, you're 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 really standing up against an entire field of science here that is 
I mean, decades old. Well, I would not. I, I would not be the first time. And very quickly, because we, we have a lot of stories to get through. Oh, I will you say know this. Um, it's a great example. Here in Chicago, the Hamilton mm-hmm. Sleepy Brook neighborhood mm, on the yes, east side had its own nuclear meltdown. It was uh, not widely it was not widely known. It's right. not something that many people know about, but it did it did occur. Right. The guaranteed rate generating station did go great nu- go critical. Great place. And while the area was abandoned and condemned, uh, the Hamilton Sweepy Brook uh, as a neighborhood really doesn't exist anymore. The surrounding neighborhoods have had higher background radiation since then, and they are doing fine. They are thriving. The Hollow Ferris High Geese which are a school in a neighborhood that is right next to the exclusion zone, have had a winning winning football team for the last decade. Which and it's thanks to Epsilon Epsilon radiation. Now I don't watch sports and I and I'm not very sure on how one would evaluate a high school football team, but I hear those young men are very strapping and one wonders if radiation was as bad as they claim it to be, they being the establishment, mm. then I doubt these young men would be quite so strapping as I have heard them to be. I yes, I believe I believe one does question that and that person is you, Rowan. Thank you very much for that story. Eureka Cast Now, broadcasting Saturdays, eight to nine PM on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. <laughs>